some appreciation for art. Some of you know this one, but there were three. There was an Englishman, a, uh, here are the three clergy leaders of it, an Englishman, a Frenchman, and a Russian looking at a painting of Adam and Eve. And the Englishman, you know, they all think it's there. Of course, um, the English, look how dignified they are. And the Frenchman said, no, monsieur, they're French. He said, they're French. And how do you know? He said, look, well, they're naked, but there's nothing pornographic about it. They're French. And the Russian said, you're both wrong. He said, I know that they're Russian. And he said, how do you know they're Russian? Well, look at them. They have no shelter, no clothing, only an apple to eat. And they're told it's paradise. So a joke can give us some joy at times, but we have Messianic Judaism is by its nature a joyful faith, joyful religion, but is this only intellectual? It's based upon, well, you know, you're supposed to have a reason for the hope, for the joy you have, based upon our acknowledgement of the fact, well, whatever we might have to endure in this life, good or bad, it will be overwhelmed by the unspeakable joy which we will experience when we spend eternity with Hashem. Well, it's certainly true that our joy includes an intellectual trust that eternity will make it all worth it, if you want to put, put it that way. But there's a lot more to it than that. Our present experience... Our joy in our present experience is not denying tsuris. What's tsuris? That's what you feel. If you're troubling Yiddish, it's like tsur. You get hit by a rock, it'll give you tsuris. But um, I'm re- I, a couple of you from the Parsha class heard this last week, so you get a rerun. But um, on the day of Netflix, what's wrong with reruns? But um, David HaMelech, the primarily primary author of Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms. This says the ordeals of life, the ordeals of life, of David's life, I should say, could have broken anyone, but not him. They're detailed in the books of Samuel, Chronicles, and the first chapter of Kings. He was a descendant of Ruth, the righteous Moabite convert. Moabite convert, and his enemies contended that the seed of Moab was forbidden to enter the congregation of Israel. He was even accused of being the son of a non-Jewish maidservant, and that his mother was not the wife of Jesse, one of the all-time righteous men of Israel. He was the youngest of his family and was consigned to the fields as shepherd of the family's flock. When God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint an unnamed son of Jesse, Yishai, um, as the future king of Israel, his father and brothers left him with the sheep. So unqualified did they consider him. When he was outraged by the blasphemies of Goliath, and no Jew, not even King Shaul, dared confront the Philistine giant, David stepped forward and people thought he was an immature upstart. He killed Goliath and became Shaul's favorite and son-in-law. But Shaul soon came to hate him, considering him a traitor and pursuing him without respite. His fellow Jews informed on him to Shaul. David had to flee to Plishtia, where he was surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill him. 
When he finally became king, it took seven years before the entire nation accepted him. And even then he was often dogged by opposition. There was dissension and assassination in his own family. His experience with Bathsheba tarred his reputation. His fervent wish to build a base Hamikdash was denied him. His own son mounted a revolution against him and tried to murder him. As an old man, the once great warrior was captured by the hated Philistines and was nearly killed before his loyal warriors saved him. And as David lay on his deathbed, another son tried to depose him and declare himself king. How many tranquil moments did he have in his life? Yet his whole life was a symphony of song, faith, song, and praise of Hashem. The book of Tehillim is not merely a collection of his inspired prayers and praises. It embodies his essence as a person and is a dedicated servant of Hashem. Servant of Hashem. That is an august title, for it is applied only to someone who lived not for himself, but exclusively to carry out the will of his maker. It's a title that God gave Moses when he died in Deuteronomy 34.5, and is the title he gave to David. In Tehillim, Psalms 89.21. So a great servant, one be known even um, as, the, as the, um, the King, King Messiah is known as Mashiach ben David. But he doesn't see, we think about it, he was, uh, I read a biography of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, and they said, the subtitle said, The Turbulent Life of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Well, that could apply, if you wrote a biography of David, it would be, turbulent would probably be an accurate description of it. So we have this we have this model. Yet how would he apply in in First Kepha, that is the first epistle of, of Peter, beginning with chapter one, verse eight, talks about a joyful and anticipatory faith. So if you've read the book of Psalms, you're not going to be able to deny the reality of trials, or many of you just by your own experiences have had trials. So we're not denying that, but also our faith should be joyful and anticipatory faith. Shimon Kepha speaks of, Simon Peter, but it speaks of a joyful and anticipatory faith. In chapter 1 of his first epistle, if you look at 1 Peter, it's 1 Kepha, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Without having seen him, you love him. The Mashiach. Without seeing him now, but trusting in him, you continue to be full of joy that is glorious beyond words. And faith sometimes, I heard a rabbi speak once um, referencing Martin Buber that, that um, they thought Judaism was primarily not a religion of beliefs, which he claimed Christianity is, and maybe that's too simplistic of, of, of to generalize about another religion, but um, Judaism is, a, he said, primarily a religion of emunah, of faith, which could be better than in trust, which is how Stern, in his translation, renders it. Kepha's readers, unlike Kepha himself, had not seen Messiah Yeshua in the flesh. He lived, he lived at least, or at least close to three and a half decades beyond the resurrection. So a lot of people had not had not seen him, perhaps had not even, may have even had parents who hadn't been alive at the time. Yet they loved their Messiah, even though they hadn't seen him. Recalled to such love. One example, in Yochanan, that is the fourth gospel, chapter 20, Yochanan 20, 26. A week later, this is after the resurrection, uh, his Talmudim were once more in the room, 
And this time, Thomas, famous for his doubts, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Yeshua came, stood among them, and said, Shalom Aleichem, which is peace unto you, the plural. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands, take your hand and put it into my side. Don't be lacking in trust, but have trust. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Yeshua said to him, have you trusted because you have seen me? How blessed are those who do not see, but trust anyway. So if you're not among, contrary to what some may think, I'm not old enough to have lived to see Yeshua in the flesh. But, um, but we are not among those who early tell me, deem, who are privileged to see Messiah in the flesh. Yet we love the one who gave his life for us. Not seeing him now, we believe in him. It is he whom we trust. So Shimon Kefa writes about, he writes about an unspeakable joy. You say, what's well, unspeakable? Why do you speak of it? But unspeakable joy which we experience, something beyond words. He's speaking of the here and now, a current experience they're having. When Kepha tells us about our joy, he says that it is glorious beyond words. This description of the unalterable nature of our joy is unique in the Brit Chadashah, in this passage. Are you desiring to see wonders in your congregation? Well, this is a great wonder. The joy which we can currently experience is beyond words, beyond what we can explain, beyond its unutterable nature. So what we can experience is beyond the ability of normal verbal communication to describe with precision. In First Kepha one nine, he says, "And you are receiving what your trust is aiming at, namely, your deliverance." Talks about what your trust is aiming at. This is this is it could be rendered ten. It's um, 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 end, telos, which or tello. It's a verb here, but um, one thing people argue about with Romans Romans ten four, which I think about with a like. Um, like people, a lot of people think, well, it's the end of Torah. Like, like they're a CB person saying ten four. That that's going to solve all the discussion. But um, it's the end, the goal to which your faith is striving. What the point of what you're trusting in? We see the outcome of our trust in God, the deliverance of our souls. When the Bible refers to receiving, it's often the obtaining of a prize, a reward, which is in mind. An example of this is Ephesians 6, 8. Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 8 says, Remember that whoever, whoever does good work, whether he be a slave or a free man, will be rewarded by the Lord. The next part of, of, of our main text in 1 Kepha 1, 9 says, Something which is quite interesting. Many people like to quote, as I mentioned before, Romans 10.4 being the end of the Torah to mean that, that somehow Messiah renders the Torah inoperative. And some will say, well, he doesn't mean violently, he doesn't violently overthrow Torah. They say, That's what it means. So you're saying in an underhanded way, he, he, um, like a spy gets rid of Torah. But it, 
doesn't refer to rendering Torah inoperative, thus of no use today. First Kepha 1.9 basically uses the same root, telas. Instead of rendering the verse as what your trust is aiming at, we could say the end of your faith. But does that mean that our heavenly reward will be rendering inoperative of our trust in God? Of course not. Sometimes when you say the ends justifies the means, which I'm not saying the ends does justify the means, but they're, they're saying, you know, the result, the goal that you reach. Some people argue to say, well, sometimes the goal that you reach may justify, maybe the methods weren't perfect, which is a whole other ethical argument. But they're not talking about termination, but the goal that you will reach is ideal. And it's talking about the goal here. Trust in God is of eternal significance as is Torah. Spiritual growth toward messianic maturity is a continuous, lifelong process. Our personal trust in Hashem should cause us to embark upon and continue in a life of trust, a life of believing in Yeshua Messiah, and it's a life of rejoicing. The reward is our being set apart by God. Kedush, we have the whole theme, Kedush, Kedusha, Kadish, the... um, the, a lot of theme is there is the setting apart, the sanctification. As Shabbat is set apart from the days of the week. We're set apart. Romans 6, 20 through 23, trying to be set apart. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in relationship to righteousness. But what benefit did you derive from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end result of those things was death. However... Now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you do get the benefit. It trusts, it consists in being made holy, set apart for God, and its end result is eternal life. For what one earns from sin is death, but eternal life is what one receives as a gift from God. In union with Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Messianic Judaism is a joyful faith, but is also anticipatory. Returning to our main text, 1st Kepha 1.10, the prophets who prophesied about this gift of righteousness, excuse me, gift of deliverance, righteousness, but the prophets who prophesied about this gift of deliverance, this was meant for you, pondered and inquired diligently about. One of the, I don't think still do, one of the popular supermarket tabloids used to always say, inquiring minds want to know. Well, Kate, the, um, they want to know about, you know, a, um, famous, a famous celebrity is really a, high, a space alien hybrid. But, um, so inquiring minds want to know. We'll tell you what people, that, they'll tell you, what, the idea of this, we'll tell you what those other people won't tell you. Well, Kepha tells us graceful minds want to know. These graceful minds, the, and the emphasis of grace, favor these graceful minds, the prophets, told us that the grace, God's special favor, granted us in Messiah Yeshua that would come. The prophets apparently meditated on their own prophecies, longing for fulfillment. I pointed out earlier that we are not so privileged to see Messiah in the flesh now. But we have no business feeling sorry for ourselves. We're a privileged group. In the first gospel, in Matityahu 13, 16, and 17, it says, think of the privileges. When you're um, 
when you're feeling sorry for yourself, and as we talk about David, it's not to deny the the surus. I mean, oy vey, I've had plenty of opportunity to say that in my life. But it's not to be focused upon, it's not for the person being focused upon, woe is me, but to understanding our privileged status. But you, despite the surus, but you, how blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Yes, indeed, I tell you that many a prophet and many a tzaddik long to see the things you are seeing but did not see them and hear the things you are hearing but did not hear them. So blessed are our eyes and our ears partaking of the fulfillment. We don't see Messiah in the flesh, but we have this revelation of seeing this work of deliverance carried out. The prophets pondered and inquired diligently about, diligently about what we have revealed to us. We should emphasize the word diligently. For the inquiry which the prophets engaged in, this inquiry was more than a mild wondering about what future would bring. Like, oh, I wonder what happened. It was, a, I wonder a lot about a lot of things. I wondered, about, well, he's, he's deceased now, but one of my favorite novelists, Leon Uris, what his next novel would be like. Um, I might wonder about a lot of things. I might wonder if the Bengals will ever get a good offensive line. But, um, I wa- but it's, it's beyond this. Yes, I wonder when halachic consensus will be, regard, regard, will be reached regarding organ transplants. I wonder if an artificial heart will ever be perfected. And I wonder about many other things. The things which I wonder about are not meaningless in their context. But the prophets of Tanakh did a lot more than show mild interest. Their interest in fulfillment was no mere hobby, as our eschatological speculations often are. The prophets searched the scriptures in an, in an active effort to find, to find out whatever God would reveal to them about the fulfillment of these prophecies. And what exactly did the prophets inquire about? In our main text, in 1 Kepha 1.11, they were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Messiah in them was referring to and predicting the Messiah's sufferings and glorious things to follow. Uh, we sometimes act like we believe that the Ruach the spirit was off on sabbatical or only working part-time when the prophets of Tanakh were around. If we don't do that, then we often approach prophecy by giving glory not to God, but to the prophet. But Shimon Kepha tells us that it is the Ruach who does the testifying. The prophets were the Ruach's mouthpiece, godly mouthpieces, no doubt. And the prophet's godliness was demonstrated in their godly searching for that, for that which was not specifically revealed to them. So whatever had not been revealed to them, that's what they searched for. And understanding the fulfilling, the carrying out through history of their prophecies. They searched for the time or the kind of time that, ref- that the Ruach was referring to. They desired to know the circumstances of fulfillment. But was this an unhealthy obsession with so-called end times, with eschatology? Of course not. The prophets, 
The prophets kept their focus upon redemption. They were interested not in who could do the best job of predicting some future event, but in the atoning suffering of Mashiach and the glories which follow this fulfillment. This is what the Ruach was predicting. This is what he spoke to. This is what the prophet's focus was. We need to ask ourselves, is our anticipation regarding prophetic fulfillment, is it because we're bored with life in general? Which is not a godly attitude. Or because we have an anticipatory focus upon Hashem's plan of redemption. A lot of times it's um, this, well, we, we're so anticipatory, but it's, because I don't feel like waiting. One guy, one, I read one, one uh, professor I read, he had, he had given a teaching about something he thought from scripture to a congregation that he thought there were certain difficulties, tribulations that followers of God were going to have to go through and a lot of the people didn't receive that well and he said he thought that the response was mainly not because they thought he was wrong in scripture. They didn't want to have to go through those difficulties. Is our anticipation largely because wouldn't it be cool if we lived to see that? Maybe not so cool if we say, well, no, maybe it's not for a thousand years. Yet the prophets, many of whom had centuries and centuries to go before they see any fulfillment, were eagerly anticipating. And this is what they eagerly focused upon. And that should be our focus upon God's plan of redemption. Our last verse for today in one twelve. First Kepha one twelve. It was revealed to them that their service, when they spoke about these things, was not for their own benefit, but for yours. And these same things have now been proclaimed to you by those who communicated the good news to you through Ruach Hakodesh, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. As I said, it's um, popular speculation about end times is often very self-serving. seems like the person setting the date always says that the final generation is the present. That, that way we can get in on the proverbial gravy. I mean, kosher gravy, of course. But the prophets of Tanakh, on the other hand, were not self-serving. They had, every, they had very little to gain, experientially speaking, from their prophecies. The selfless nature of their prophecy was revealed to them. Some of them suffered, suffered because they gave prophecies which were not popular. Are we that self, selfless? Or are, we, are our theological systems conveniently self-serving? Every moment in history has its uniqueness. Every one of us is uniquely privileged to witness that which no other generation has witnessed. If you believe that the return of Messiah is just around the corner, fine. But let's base our beliefs on conviction and truth, not on a selfish desire to be in on the eschatological action. It's hard to even say. Eagerness and anticipation are commendable, but... Let's not forget the prophets of Tanakh had a faith, a trust, which was characterized by eagerness and anticipation, even though it had been revealed to them that their prophecies regarding Mashiach were primarily for a future time. How did the prophets serve later generations? They spoke of the atonement which Messiah would accomplish, the good news of the atoning work of Ruach, communicated by Ruach HaKodesh, 
the Ruach, by means of those who proclaim this good news, this Basura. It enables us to enjoy the servanthood which the prophets perform for us. To proclaim the Basura of the fulfillment of prophecy in the atoning death and resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. That's an honor. To proclaim the good news is to be a herald of the Ruach. That's the honor whether, whether you see what you're hoping to see in the fulfillment. When an event occurs, which is really significant, even if it's happening on the other side of the world, we hear about it, we read about it, and we sit up and take note. We're interested. God's provision of redemption for man is obviously a significant event. The point of heavenly messengers, angels here they mention, are interested. They take note. They want to look into these matters. They desire to steal a glance. We should not confuse this angelic interest with mild curiosity. It's not a case of angels in their spare time dabbling here and there in human salvation. They don't have their, their, um, they don't have their, their remote control. I was alive before they had remote control. You know, you look, if you ever have a channel, you might change or... Um, and, oh, for a few seconds. This is interesting to look for a minute or two, but not enough to, to um, really get to um, understand what's going on. Dabbling here and there, the angelic interest in the redemption of mankind is an intense desire to witness the fulfillment of the promises of Hashem. We've seen that Messianic Judaism is a joyful religion, a joyful faith. We have also seen that that joy is based not upon a denial of the reality of what we experience in this life. It's not sort of, of some messianic masochism, but upon our love for our God who is unseen, but who lives. This joy, beyond what we can even put into words, unspeakable joy, goes hand in hand with a spiritual anticipation. We anticipate, even as we are now experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of God. God has made available to us Redemption. Prophets and angels have shown intense interest in this redemption. But will we show enough interest to accept our inheritance, what has been given to us? That's something to dwell upon. Thank you for your time. We continue.